Good morning. My name is Linda Keller, and today we will be reading from Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, and you can find those in your pew Bible on page 823. Again, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me add my good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you guys. Uh, Sarah did so great with short announcements, I feel like I can make a couple as we get started. Um, if you're new here, that's funny because it's a problem, actually. It's an addiction that I have to announcements. A couple quick, though, hospitality things. I just don't want to forget at the end of the service, uh, this morning we're going to change communion just a little bit. If you've been here, we sometimes are like lining the walls or out in the hallway when it comes down to take communion. We take communion every Sunday uh, as a way to remind ourselves of who Jesus is for us to physically respond to the good news of the gospel, to say, this is my only hope. And because Christ broke his body and shed his blood, whatever we've talked about today actually makes sense, and I have hope to actually follow after God because he's done all the work. So we take communion every single week. It's a little bit of a logistical thing that we're trying to figure out. And so this morning, we're going to experiment with four different lines. So coming down each aisle, I think what we're going to try as you come down the aisle and then turn and go right back up the same aisle instead of some sort of crisscross pattern. If you forget, it should be okay. As long as nobody's running, we should be fine. But, um, so we're going to come down the aisle and then circle and go back up. Gluten-free, I think, will be right here in the middle. Um, so you guys can navigate that as you come through. Uh, it should work out a little bit smoother. And our hope is that it just frees the room just a little bit to be a little more contemplative, a little more quiet, a little more um, like reflective. So you're not worried about where's my line and where do I stand and am I going too fast or too slow. By lifting some of that logistics, you should have a little more space just to pray and to think as we come into communion. I'll try to remind you again, but my fear was that I would like forget to say that, and it would be pandemonium down here. So um, that's kind of my, my hope. That's announcement number one. Number two, uh, like Sarah said, we have kind of started this remodel, which means down the hall in our fellowship hall is a space if you need room for kids, or you just feel like maybe uncomfortable with the size of this room and you want a, a little more space to move around. Down there, we put some rugs and some trees that almost look real, so we're creating like a little uh, living room space that way, but like moms and dads, you have like a spot to put your kids down on the floor. They can kind of wiggle around on some clean rugs that are down there, so if that helps a little bit, 
that's just out these doors uh, to, to my right uh, that way. And then finally, um, I just want you to know we are uh, partnering with this women's health clinic, uh, trying to make a difference when it comes to moms that are choosing to keep their children. And so today is the last day to kind of officially collect items for some uh, new mom's baskets that this agency does. Uh, but they're all week long, you're able to bring them. And we would love just to really bless these women. So you can find information on your uh, little bulletin as well as a table out there. I uh, just want to encourage you, if you're going like, I want to make a tangible difference. I've been praying for a long time about how do we value life together. This would be a great opportunity for you. So if you forgot or missed that announcement uh, in the last couple of weeks, just want you to know you can bring those by the office this week, and then our team will put those together and we'll deliver them uh, next week. So, so today's last Sunday, but all week's open. All right, just want to give you that. Hey, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll jump into this passage. Jesus, thank, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for what you've said, how you've taught. Thanks for what this passage says about you and what it says about us. Thanks that we can have hope because of what you've done. And as you teach, maybe even in ways that maybe are a little bit confusing initially, um, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand who you are and what you're saying it means to follow you. Christ, you provide. You're good. You have sacrificed. You, you, you have done everything we needed you to do. And we're asking now for eyes to see and ears to hear to know how to apply that to our regular everyday life. So, so would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, one more hospitality piece, just as we've been kind of walking through our series in Matthew. Uh, we're coming to a section where we're going to see like six or seven applications to where we've been the last few weeks. And so if you missed it, in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus just is very clear about what it means to be his follower. And it's not prestige and titles and position. It's actually death and service and sacrifice and he's going to say he's the one who models this for us he's the one who accomplishes this on our behalf but he says to follow after me really is to come and die to yourself and then we see this beautiful scene of this transfiguration where you have this declaration of death and you're going like man who is this guy and then we get the veil torn back we see him for who he really is in his glorious state as the god of the universe and so we have this like servant who's also god the, the God-man, the man who says, I'm going to die for you, and the God who came to actually deliver us. That's where we've been in Matthew. And what's happening now in the next couple of scenes is uh, some teaching on what does it mean to live that out? How do you do that when it comes to marriages and forgiveness and issues with money and even places here of like social obligation? What do I do with cultural norms and my own freedom? He, he's going to make application from those two things. The glorious truth that he's the God of the universe and he calls his followers to come and be like him to die to themselves so that they might actually follow him. But I want to just connect those dots for you. The next couple of weeks as we walk through some what will feel like practical sermons about money and about forgiveness and about relationships, they're rooted in this idea or this teaching or this call to Christians to actually die to themselves. So we won't be looking at like tips for relationships. We'll be looking at if I'm dying to myself, what does that mean to actually uh, translate to forgiveness? If I'm dying to myself, what does that mean for my, my quest for identity and significance and value and worth that I could accomplish or provide? What does it mean for me to actually see myself in the back of the line, to see myself least is where we go next week? I just want to locate that for you because if we're not careful, we're going to run the next couple of passages through our normal grid of how do we get better and try harder and do more. But they're applications of Jesus saying to be my follower is to come and to die. 
which now let me kind of introduce this passage. Hey, it's kind of a strange text. It's the only place we see this in the gospel, this kind of fish story. And historians have tried to soften it for us by saying, hey, there actually are evidence of like catfish that are scoundrels on the ground who come across shipwrecks and they do actually eat little coins. And so there have been moments in history where people have found jewels or treasure in a fish's mouths. Fine, that's great. I don't think we need that to be true to understand what Jesus is saying. And I don't think the fish is the most provocative thing about this passage. So, so last night as I was talking this through with Adrienne and kind of told her kind of my outline, uh, at one point she was kind of like, that's fine, but you don't even mention like my biggest question, which is what the heck is going on with this fish? So I'll, I'll get there. I'll talk about the fish. I promise, I promise, I promise. But I want you to kind of step into this passage saying, hey, what if the most provocative thing is not can God put a coin in a fish's mouth to pay my taxes, but can I actually think about my freedoms differently to where I'm not insisting on my own way and my grid to see other people and reality is not a self-focused understanding where I'm constantly scanning the horizon for what's best for me, what makes me feel good, what would make me actually feel self-actualized in this world. The expressive individualism of our culture, I think actually having Jesus confront that is way more provocative. And maybe we would say way more in need of the miraculous. For you to be freed from the way that you see the world and see yourself in the world where, where your freedoms really are king, where, where what you actually think about what you deserve and what you need is the starting grid by which you see everything. Even these passages we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, right? it's how you see forgiveness. It's how you see money. It's how you think about your marriage. It's how you come into these spaces where even you're wondering, like, how do I prove myself? I think there is an exaggerated, distorted, twisted understanding of freedom in our culture that actually makes it almost impossible to hear Jesus' words for what they really are. He wants to say that the sons of God, the daughters of God, are free. But he qualifies that in such a way that we would be willing to limit our freedom for the sake of other people. And that's where the record scratches in 2022 in America. And you can just think about the last couple of years, right? How many times has the debate been about what I need or what I deserve or what I want or my opinion or my philosophy or my, my news feed? That's told me what I deserve and what I need. And so I've been able to actually say things really loud and really angry and really, really aggressively to other people who disagree with what I think I deserve with my freedoms. Enter into the new culture we live in with the pandemic. What's happening in that moment, I think, is we're terrified. I think all of our reserves are fading away. The ways we normally sought after comfort to soothe ourselves began to evaporate. We're concerned about the economy. We're concerned about our physical safety. And in that pressure, as the world has gotten really, really small, what we had left was our own individual sense of freedom and our rights and our privileges. And then it just went crazy online it went crazy at your Thanksgiving family table. It went crazy with your friends. I mean, things just went crazy. And they were fear rooted in this idea of my own, like, relentless pursuit of my individual freedom. It's a very American idea. And in so many ways, it's like a good idea. 
but the way the evil one always takes a good idea and parasitically attaches to it and distorts it, you and I have swallowed an understanding of freedom. That's not what Christ is talking about. You have a self-terminating and determining understanding of freedom. So I think the fish is like a thing we've got to deal with. But friends, I think the idea that there are actually limits and you should willingly limit your freedoms for the sake of other people, I think that will require more faith. I think that will require more help. That will require more of a miraculous intervention into your life. So that's just my hypothesis as we jump into this thing. I want to just walk through the text and talk about the cultural expectations, the countercultural freedom, and the Christ centered provision look with me in this text in Matthew chapter 16 it's 823 in your pew Bible we just have heard Jesus say again that he's going to die and it says in verse 23 of chapter 17 that it makes his disciples greatly distressed they're still wrestling with the idea that the Messiah would come and die but read into that Jesus doing what he's telling us to do in this passage of limiting his rights and his freedoms for the sake of other people. That's what the gospel is all about. God himself, the God of the universe, willing to come and die for his enemies, to pay the penalty for their sin, even at their own hands as they crucify him, he's willing to go through that so that he might forgive and rescue and redeem them. So he's just promised again his death. They're greatly distressed. They hit the road and come to Capernaum, and they are met with these two tax collectors, or, or collectors of this two drachma tax. I guess we don't know how many of them are actually there. Now, these are not when you normally read the New Testament and see tax collectors. Those are normally Jews that work for the Roman government. This is a different kind of tax. So as we think about the cultural expectations, just for a moment to come into this, the two drachma tax comes out of the Old Testament. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 30. It was a command to God's people, essentially, that every man over 25 would give this two drachma offering to the temple or actually to the tabernacle for maintenance and upkeep essentially is what's going on and so it was part of the census when they would take the census any man over 25 then would pay that tax so it's in the scriptures so these two people or these two drachma tax people are coming to peter and they ask hey does your teacher doing the thing is he following the cultural norms is he doing what's expected of a regular jew and he comes and he says Does he pay the tax? And Peter says, yes. And in that space, what we have to understand is the question, does your teacher pay the tax, is kind of a loaded question. As loaded as it was when you were asked, are you going to get the vaccine? That was not a medical question. That was a question about, do you watch CNN or Fox? Are you a Democrat or Republican? Are you a racist misogynist or are you a good person? Are you a socialist and a Marxist or are you, I mean, it was just bananas, right? So there's a question about vaccine, but it was like, wait, how you answer that will say so much more about you. Are you going to wear a mask? Are you one of those people that the government's got a hold of? And have you kind of been brainwashed or are you terrified and, or are you a loving person? Like it meant so many things. It was not simply a question about a vaccine or a mask. And let me just here. I don't want to put you down like a traumatic like rabbit hole of where we've been. So let me hold on. But I think I just want to make it um, relevant to you because I think this is a, a really profound and it's the most recent in our cultural memory of where this issue with freedoms just went off the rails. So I, I don't, I mean, I care if you got the vaccine because I care about you, but, but I don't care. We have, we're not a church that has said masks, no masks, vaccines, vaccines. We have tried to follow 
kind of the cultural norms in here we thought was going to be wisest, but like we didn't declare Jesus says you should or shouldn't. We didn't follow those rules. So I don't, let me just be careful. I'm like feeling nervous. I'm, this is not, this is not a sermon about vaccines and masks like retroactively, which would be normal for me like 18 months too late to go, hey, you know what's neat we should talk about? Like, no. But, but while you can still remember like the loss of friendships, when you can still remember like what it was like to look at somebody that you thought like knew you and trusted you and you had, you had a deep, deep friendship with to watch that thing turn so fast over something. And you realize it wasn't about a vaccine. It was about fear and rights and freedom and the government and, and my own autonomy. That's why it was so loaded. It wasn't just what you think about Big Pharma. It was so many things about who's going to protect you and who gets to say what you need. That thing is still rampant in your heart, by the way. It'll just be the next thing will pop up and you'll have to deal with this idea of like nobody can tell me what to do. And I love this church that we have folks who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who are like stable. And I know being 80 doesn't automatically make you mature, but we have some amazing folks who just weren't shaken by stuff. And they like made decisions about vaccines, but not stomping their feet like three-year-olds with their middle finger raised saying no one's going to tell them what to do. They just said... I made a decision I think was best for me, and it was beautiful to watch maturity play out in a cultural situation. But it was a trick question in so many ways. Like this question is a trick question. It's about patriotism. And we actually see from history that there was some confusion because the original tax was for the tabernacle, which was the kind of temporary meeting place with God and his people. So once the temple was built, there were folks who said, well, we no longer need this tabernacle tax because now we... Have the temple. So history tells us that uh, the religious leaders were divided. The Sadducees refused to pay the tax. So there's a lot of question inside of here. Hey, Jesus, who do you align with? The, the history tells us that the Qumran community, where you've heard like the Dead Sea Scrolls, they thought, yeah, you pay it one time forever and you're done. It's a one-time tax that you pay. Mo- most people didn't have the means to like resist, and so they would just pay whatever was asked of them in that space so that's going on so there's a question about hey Jesus what do you think about the government what do you think about our religious institutions what do you think about the cultural norms in those spaces and it had a lot to do even with Jesus's own rights because the law provided a way for rabbis and priests to not have to pay this tax so there's kind of a question of like hey Jesus are you going to take the exemption that you have and you're not really an official rabbi but everyone's calling you rabbi where are you going to find yourself are you going to express your freedoms and take some rights in this moment so it's kind of a loaded question in that space what I love is Peter just says well yeah I mean of course Jesus is going to pay has paid will pay however it works out he, he pays that tax he follows the cultural expressions and the norms he he does what is kind of asked of him in that space it's just a simple little answer to a really complicated question and what Jesus is about to do then is what he normally does is takes a trick trap question and cut through it with the good news of the gospel in ways that blows everybody's categories and you can't put him on the conservative or the liberal side he is conservative in some ways and liberal in other ways and he actually answers to his father in ways that is really, really instructive for us. So, so the cultural norms, Jesus says, yep, I'm doing it. I'm following the, kind of the tradition. I'm following what's healthy in that space. And there's a reason why, because something about this tax didn't violate 
the Imago Dei. It wasn't about the twisted, distorted rules of the Pharisees. Because we've seen Jesus resist cultural norms before. We've seen him rise up. And in fact, actually in a couple of chapters, we're going to see him go into the temple and flip over tables and make a whip and drive things out. So he's not just playing nice. The teaching here is not just be nice and compliant. The teaching here is listen to what your father says, your heavenly father. And from that space, live out of an identity. Jesus models that for us. So, so the second point then, a countercultural freedom. They get asked, uh, the disciples do, and Peter responds, yes, he pays that. They walk into the house, it says in the middle of verse 25, and when he comes into the house, Jesus spoke to them first, which is interesting, just like he wasn't part of that conversation, but he knows it's happening, so Jesus just addresses that. He moves towards the disciples with their question, saying, well, what do you think, Simon? What do you think, Peter? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Does the king tax his own children or does he get the tax from somebody else, he's saying? And when they said from, from others, it doesn't, he doesn't tax his own children, then Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Okay, there's a countercultural answer here in this space because Jesus goes past freedom like to this point we would go yeah that's right i'm free no one's the boss of me no one can tell me what to do and if i know jesus then i answer to a higher calling therefore i can say whatever i want act however i want do whatever i want there's a weird thing that our freedom gets distorted to i don't even have to act christian anymore i'm just free and jesus actually moves past that to say however not to give an offense to them go to the sea cast a hook in get this fish get the money for the tax and go pay it. So Jesus takes our freedom that comes from our relationship with God, and he says that freedom is real, that freedom is glorious, that freedom is something to be rejoiced in, and that freedom is meant to be used for God's glory. It's meant to be used to draw people to himself. It's not meant to be an offense to other people. Our, our freedoms are not meant to be leveraged for our own gain, you might say. Our freedoms have a purpose that go way past just us. And so Jesus is going to, in a couple of sentences, kind of lay out for us what is later explained throughout the New Testament, both of Jesus and himself, of this ethic that a Christian has of full freedom in God. And he dies to himself. Full freedom and that there's no, no condemnation for what they do. You really are free. And if Christ has set you free, then you are free indeed, the Scriptures say. And then we read our cultural norm into that. And so instead of that, Jesus is saying, however, there are some boundaries to your freedom. And the boundary is not from the culture. The boundary is from, from God Himself to say, don't give an offense to other image bearers as you think about the expression of your freedom. So there's a counter-cultural freedom that has a responsibility to others inside of it that Jesus lays out. It's not as simple as do you pay the tax or not. Jesus again elevates the question to a way of saying, hey, how do you see yourself? How do you see others? Who, who, do, you, who do you answer to? So, so I wanted to say a couple things real quick as we jump in. We'll see in chapter 22 another kind of tax question where in that moment it's asked about the government. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And I kind of actually wasn't careful with my words. This is not the government tax. This is not like a political thing. This is a religious thing. So you have kind of a religious tax on one side and a political tax on another side. Jesus answers both of them. What's fascinating is he answers both of them with identity. 
with the tax for Caesar, he asks, hey, whose impression is on that coin? And they say, well, Caesar's is. This is great. Okay, well, then give to Caesar whatever is his and give to God whatever is God's. And we read into that that our image comes from God. And so it's a question about identity for the government tax. And this is a question about identity. Hey, who are the sons of God? And what happens with the father and the son? What does the identity of the son have to do with how you respond to the freedoms in the world around you? Jesus pushes in this space an identity that's free from the compulsions both from the outside and from the inside. Identity in Christ because of what Christ has done to make you right with God, to free you, to forgive you, actually sets you up to be free from the compulsions from things outside of you. And all the constraints and the pressures and the expectations, you're free from that. But you're also free from the compulsions that are on the inside of you that would have you actually not want to be generous and kind and gentle and loving and self-sacrificing, but would have you actually, from a fear-based compulsion, want to cling and hold on to and grab hold in ways that actually you want to maintain some control. So, so identity is kind of at the center of this, and it's both from outside and from the inside. I just want you to say that the answer for Jesus in this space is about a firmly rooted identity in what God has done. So let's just talk about that for a minute. What, what is this identity? Jesus says something here that might sound confusing to you, but I think it's really beautiful. He says, all right, let's just talk for a second about the kings of the earth. From whom do they get their tax? Is it from their sons or from others? And the obvious answer is, is from others. Scholars have taken this lots of different directions, but the, the simple core here is a question of, well, then who are the sons? It's not so much we should maybe recollect like, who else is paying taxes, but what he's saying in the, the punchline is, well, the sons are free. So the question is, who are the sons of God? Well, from this context we saw in chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus is the Son of God. Right there in the transfiguration, we hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So, so Jesus is the Son, so He's free in that space. And the Bible goes on to talk about those of us who actually trust God are also sons of God. I have so many passages I want to throw at you. Adrian reminded me that I could use the newsletter so I didn't bludgeon you with verses. So I'm going to try to walk like a fine line of being helpful without overwhelming you. But, but think about even where we've been in Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who seek peace, those who follow me in peace, because they are the sons of God. Those who follow after the teachings and the ethics and trust in Jesus in such a way that they're being transformed are seen as sons. In John 1.12, we see that he came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. Verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who are the daughters and sons of God? It's those who receive and believe Jesus is who he said he was. So, so Jesus is the Son of God, therefore he's free. All those who trust in him, they are free. Talk about adoption. Therefore, we can cry out, Abba, Father. We're no longer debtors, but we actually are now free to follow after the Spirit. Remember in Matthew 16, he's saying, You have to die for living the body of flesh. It's really actually kind of idea. Without that, you're actually not free. You're in bondage. Without dying to yours and giving over your life, no life, the text says in chapter 16 of Matthew. We spent several weeks there. 
And the idea there is to actually die to myself is the thing that really does free me and bring about life. And it's the thing that actually helps me to come into a relationship with God because I'm no longer trying on my own merit or efforts or work. I'm not conceiving of my own idea of how to save myself. I'm trusting Jesus to be the one who frees me. And the alternative to that is not some other like self-fulfillment. It's slavery. And that kind of slavery, Romans 8 says, that actually bears the wrath of God. To build an identity for myself apart from God is not just a a thing I could try and see what happened. It actually is is an idolatrous pursuit of rebellion to God to say, I won't let you define me. I'm going to define myself. And in that space, friends, that's not freedom. It's bondage. We're told expressive individualism is the path to freedom. But talk to people who have pursued that road and blown up their marriages and kind of engaged in addiction and, and, and pushed away their friendships. And actually, their world got really, really small really fast when they were the center of the world. And they find themselves not free, but, but in, in bondage. So who are the sons of God? Jesus is and all those who will trust him. And then he's going to go on to talk about in the New Testament, like what that actually means. What, what does this identity actually translate to and, and I love that we get a chance, kind of uh, lots of places in the scripture to talk about identity. In so many ways, Jesus came to tell us what was true, to help this kind of like parasitic understanding of what had been attached to our identity to tell us about our value being in our performance and someone else's approval and, and comfort and empower and what we could acquire, what we could experience. Jesus comes and says, no, 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 those aren't what give you identity. I'm the one who gives you identity. With our men on Thursday mornings, we're walking through this book called Rare Leadership. And this last week, we were in the letter A, which was act like yourself. And it was a conversation just about who, who am I really and how do I even know kind of who I am? What does it mean rather than like acting out of like a, ref, a reflective, responsive aggression of fight or flight? How do I just center myself and say, if Christ has set me free, what does it look like for me to actually follow him? There's an early morning conversation about kind of big, big ontological ideas that have tons of application to our life. And, and the author that we're reading talks about identity comes from, from people around us. And it's a little tricky, but he says, we're asking the question, who are my people? And what does it look like to act like us? So you were given an identity from your family. You were given an identity from our community, where you went to high school, where you went to college, kind of had some sort of identity for you. These are my people, and we act like this fraternity. We act like this sorority. We act like this competitive band. We act like wherever we are in this space, right? This is who we are. These are my people. And this is what it means to act like us. And in so many ways, what the scripture is doing is saying, hey, who are my people? Who are the brothers and sisters? Who are the folks that I connect with? Is it based on race? Is it based on economic status? Is it based on gender? Is it based on where I come from? No, no, it's based on Christ, the scriptures say. No longer Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave-free, barbarian, Scythian. It's not that background that really defines you. You have a deeper identity. And then the New Testament is aimed at saying, what does it mean to act like us? If that's who my people are, then how, how do we act? What does it mean to actually embody that kind of identity? And Jesus is hinting at it when he says, you're simultaneously free, but you're not using your freedom to actually offend other people. Your freedom doesn't trump somebody else's situation, their, their, their needs, what, what it means to actually bless and honor them. And so we looked at a passage last Thursday morning in Galatians 
where, where Paul just lays out for us this idea of what it means to actually have an identity in Christ and then to live into that. So verse 1 of chapter 5 in Galatians says this, For freedom Christ has set you free. Sounds really familiar. It's what he's saying. You're free as a daughter and son. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, right? You have identity in Christ because you die to yourself and you trust him. Everything else is slavery. And there's a temptation in the Old Testament and the New Testament to want to go back to what's familiar, to this identity that you've learned to leverage and manipulate and manage your whole life. Because you got really good at living into what other people thought you should do so you would have love, so you could be accepted, so you would be admired. And you practice those things for so long, they are reflexive now. So when you're in a jam, when you're scared, when you're overwhelmed, when you're uncertain, when you're insecure, the temptation is to reflexively act on what the Scripture calls the flesh. And instead he's saying, no, no, now you're filled with the Spirit of God, so actually now act in light with the Spirit, he says. That's what Romans 8 is about that we just referenced. And so he goes on in Galatians chapter 5, as in verse 13, uh, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom doesn't mean do whatever you want. Like, there, like there's no condemnation doesn't mean you should still go ahead and explore that thing that's going to actually bring death to you. That you're freed from it doesn't mean you should pursue it. Don't, don't have an opportunity for flesh, but, but actually through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled with one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The freedom actually expresses itself in love of neighbor which is similar to this sacrifice and this service. It's what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's the pattern for husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, to, to love their wives as Christ loved himself and, and died. He died in a way that actually laid down his rights in that space, right? to, to love our neighbor. And he says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. And he lists these things of the flesh, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and anger and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of rage and dissensions and divisions and drunkenness and all these things he names which are, are the f- effects of us pursuing our own identity. What we'll do to protect it, what we'll do to soothe it when it's bruised, what we'll do to actually posture in a way that actually makes it look better than it is. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, what it means to have an identity rooted in God is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These things that wouldn't give an offense to somebody else. These things that ask, hey, what is best for this other person, not what's in line with my own freedoms and desires only. And he says, in those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Can you see the parallels between the way the New Testament talks to the followers of Jesus and what Jesus is saying in this moment of your freedom should not spill over in ways that you actually harm others or take from them. To have consideration for them in ways that look like love and kind and gentleness and patience and self-control so that your freedoms don't give an offense or, or make them stumble is the language there. There's other passages that talk about the idea of like not letting somebody else put on you their regulations so I'll throw these in the newsletter, which will be so helpful for you. So Colossians chapter, sorry, that's sarcasm. It, it will be helpful. You should open it up and you should read it. But, um, but Colossians 2, because in that moment, there's a pressure from the religious community to say, go back to the way things were. Remember when your, your identity was rooted in your circumcision? Remember when it was rooted on how well you kept the law? And there's this uh, 
instruction to God's people, hey, don't go back to the way things used to be. Live into your freedom. Don't let somebody else say to you, there's more in your relationship with Jesus than you currently have. If you followed all these rules, then you'll really hit the level where you've actually really accomplished things. Stop that, he says. You only have a relationship with God because of what Christ has done. And he says, don't let anybody disqualify you. Those other things it says in verse 17 of Colossians, they're a, a shadow of the things. They're not actually the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. And actually in that, in that tax in Exodus 30, it says that this tax is to remind us of atonement. It's a, it's a redemption tax. To say that God actually purchased you and he owns you and you belong to him. That's what's rooted in that idea. There's a language of atonement in that. It's a foreshadowing of what would ultimately pay for the price for our sin, what would actually atone for our, our needs. What you see in that space is a warning that the expectations of the community don't crush your following of God. They, they don't have to follow gospel-violating rules and regulations in your attempt to actually not offend people. So someone else's expectations about the extra additional rules that if you followed these, then you would be like a religious superstar. He says, don't, don't come underneath those things. Those are elementary things that actually harm you, Colossians says. And then he says in another space, hey, but when you come to other people, don't pass judgment on them. If they're trying to work this thing out with God and they're trying to engage in ways that actually they're trying to pursue God and they think what they eat and the days that they observe and some extra rituals actually help them, then don't judge them. Let, let them work that out. That's Romans 14, which again, I'll put it in front of you. And in that passage, he says in verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in another brother's way. So the Christian freedom that actually is saying, hey, don't judge other people, don't be judged by them, there's still in the middle of that this idea that we don't want to make someone stumble. And that's the same word that Jesus uses here in verse 27 of Matthew 17, where he says, hey, don't want to give an offense to them. It's the, it's the word that we get our word scandal from. Hey, don't be scandalous in what you do. Don't let your freedoms actually spill over in ways that are not just offensive, but they actually scandalize what the gospel is about. Because how strange would it be for someone to be set free from sin, fall into this freedom of their identity, and then go right back and pursue those things they've been freed from? And you and I have like strong cultural categories of what we would never actually do. But the biblical list is things like anger and slander and malice and forms of immorality that self-soothe, and those are the places where I think we actually struggle to believe our identity in Christ is bigger than those kind of leverage points. It's bigger than those ways to manage other relationships. And we actually do throw stumbling blocks in front of people. Again, come back into this traumatic last couple of years, just go like to the the trope of online, just kind of stay there for a second, and think about the way people said things about Jesus with such venom that all you could do was stumble over that. The, the way they would use accusations and insults, where they would tear down the Imago Dei in people to make their point in the name of Jesus. That's exactly what he's talking about in this space. Don't let your freedom to do whatever you want to do. You're, you're free. Don't let your freedom actually affect people in such a way that you make them stumble. You don't want someone reading your post or walking away from your face-to-face -face conversation wondering what you meant by that and how dare you say that because all the energy and their nightmares and they're laying in bed and they're, they're kind of waking up feeling anxious is going to go to what you said 
not to where the scriptures say it should go, which is towards Jesus. Corinthians 1 just really clearly says, hey, I'm not putting any stumbling blocks in front of anybody through my behavior, through my interactions, through my words, through my choices. I'm limiting my freedoms, Paul says, so that the only stumbling block for people is Christ himself. So the thing that you must stumble over, the thing you must come into contact with, the thing you must wrestle with, is that right? Is that a sway over my life? Should I follow that? It's not my opinions or my preferences or even my expressions of my freedom. It's simply what Christ has done. And will you bow the knee to that is the way the scriptures talk. Will you actually live as people who are free, First Peter says, but not use our freedom to cover up evil, but actually live as servants of God, to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, to even honor the, the religious and government leaders around us. Can you live in that such a way so that all that's left for people to stumble over is not your posture or your attitude or your opinion or your post or your words or your inconsistencies or the things that like resonate with them but they're not sure why? The anger is so strong. The fear is so strong. The, the idea of picking sides and tribalism is so strong. People resonate with it, but you wonder, are they resonating with it from the flesh or from the spirit? There's a countercultural freedom here that Jesus puts in front of his followers. It says, oh, you are 100% free. And the father says that you are a son when you trust the son of God on your behalf to die in your place. When you receive him, and you believe in him, then your sins are forgiven. You are free top to bottom. And that freedom looks like something. That freedom is for something. That freedom is meant to be expressed in such a way that we don't actually use that freedom to cause an offense to other people. I think there's a ton there for us, church. As we think about the days ahead and what it means for us to be us, a community that proclaims hope, that pursues transformation, that pushes back darkness. To think about a community that, that the only stumbling block really is what Christ has said and done. That your neighbors, if they push away from you, it's not because of your attitude and your posture. It's not because of the, the ways you come off with an edge or your condescension or, or your placating or your flattery. That's another version of that, right? The compulsions from the inside, scriptures say like come, come in forms of like flattery and being driven in anger. It's like warnings to pastors, like in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, as you, as you shepherd people, don't do it under compulsion for dishonest gain. Don't leverage anger, and also don't use flattery, like soft and hard ways of managing and manipulating those around us. Don't, don't let it be in the social square as the question of cultural norms is asked, that what people are stumbling over is the algorithm of our social media, or the way that you grew up and what you're convinced of, your expressive individualism and the rights that you feel like you have, would you live in such a way, the scriptures say, that limit your freedom so that the only stumbling block is Christ himself, right? And Jesus is our model for this. Philippians chapter 2, which I'll put in the newsletter, will be this beautiful passage for you. of God himself, the one who ruled the universe, emptied himself and laid down his rights and came into our world to live this life of service and ultimate sacrifice so you and I could be forgiven and free. And when we're asking, who are my people and what does it mean to live like us, that's what it means to live like us. We're a people that are shaped by that story. That's all what Matthew 16 was all about. We're shaped by the death of Jesus. It's a cross-shaped identity that we 
carry as followers of Jesus. So you could just ask yourself like some introspective questions of like, is that how people see you? Is that the way you kind of present yourself in the public square? Is that the thing people are wondering about you? As people walk away from you, are they more compelled by your personality or your charisma or your positions on social issues? Or are they seeing Christ? And I know like I'm being reductionistic, but I want to do that in a way to kind of push before us because I think we've gotten really confused. And you've said things like, well, the end statement justifies whatever means it takes to get there. And the Bible just doesn't talk that way. That the means of loving one another are how we actually get to the end. And you can't talk about God's love in hateful, vengeful, self-righteous, arrogant, tribalistic ways. And okay, now, now we're done with masks and vaccines. Just think about whatever else you're dealing with, right? Whatever other questions are being thrown at you where you're tempted to actually wrestle with a, another kind of identity. And Jesus says, oh, you're totally free. Totally free. Christ has paid the penalty for all of your sin. Romans 8 1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Read into that. You are free. You're free from your past. You're free from the stuff you've said online. You're free from the stuff that you've done. You're free from what you've thought that nobody else thought in those spaces. You're free. And you're free to actually use your freedom in ways that bless other people rather than make them offended. We won't actually proclaim hope. We won't pursue transformation. And we'll have a hard time pushing back darkness if, if we keep blending our individual freedoms and treasuring that above what it means to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ. Hey, I started with this idea that the fish is weird and we're about to get there, I so promise. But, but can you track now why I'm saying that's actually more miraculous than a fish with a coin in his mouth? For you to heal from decades of expressive individualism, of an identity that you've built for yourself that actually got you married, got you jobs, got you relationships, got you into fraternities, got you a certain GPA, they got people like saying things about you that you're really grateful they say about you, to think about a space where your identity shifted from what you've accomplished and performed to what Christ is calling you to, to think about declaring bankruptcy on all of your self-identification in ways that actually proved your worth to other people, Man, that's a big deal. That, that's a kind of provision that I think is, is miraculous. So, so this idea with this fish kind of takes us into this space. I, I don't know. May, maybe there is history of fish that have jewels in their mouths, and maybe you could go to the sea. Maybe it was like not a big deal to them. It reads to me like miraculous provision, though. And you can almost hear Peter going like, man, how are we going to pay for this? What are we going to do? The same way you're going like, how do I be faithful to that? How do I actually, in the next couple passages, right, when it comes to who's the greatest and how I see myself, how would I, how would I let myself be submitted to other people in ways that I saw myself as last? What would I do with forgiveness when someone who's like really, really hurt me? Somebody who's harmed me is the way we go into chapter 18. When it comes into divorce and marriage and singleness, when it comes into what I'm doing when I honor God with my, with my body, how would I actually live a chaste life in a world that is so confused and so dehumanized us to reduce us down to the idea that we are our bodies, so much so that you can't even like trust your body, that's confusing, but you should leverage and use your body. So the dehumanizing thing, like I talked to somebody, they said, hey, it was the second date where he asked me, when will we have sex? And the dude was called himself a Christian. And she's like, this is super confusing. It's almost like, hey, what are your hobbies? 
Like, what do you, tell me about what you do for a living, and let's see if we're physically compatible. It's so, the fog is so dehumanizing, and you've been in it for so long, it's so disorienting to stop and say, how do I actually live into a reality that actually is what Christ says is true about me, not what the culture says is true? How do I not actually be shaped by or offend the culture? That will take something miraculous. As miraculous as all the things that would go into this fish just like being there. Peter just drops the hook in. It's only referenced even hooks. Everything else is always net. So there's a lot of unique things going on in this space. But the God who fed 5,000, the God who calms the sea, the God who walked on water, the God who tells other fishermen, hey, cast your net on that side, is surely able to provide in that moment. And I don't think that actually strikes as the most provocative provision. Actually, atonement for all the ways that you have actually brought offense for your relentless desire to keep proving yourself, for that addiction to self, for that to be healed and forgiven, I think takes much more of a miracle. And so kind of snarkily yesterday with Adrian in the car, I was like, yeah, yeah, the fish for sure. But like the resurrection is a way bigger deal. Like God taking on human form and rising from the dead, like that's, that's what we should stumble over. Like the fish is like way minor compared to that, which is what we focus on every week. Actually, this thing that I'm kind of jesting at is is real and is true. It's what the Son of God came to do. It's how He purchased our freedom. It's what all of our hope is on, that He actually did go all the way to the cross. He broke His body and shed His blood so that we could actually be forgiven and free. And that's what we bank our freedom on. And that actually gives us the power then not to actually live out of that freedom in ways that harm other people as we seek to be Christ's disciples and to follow Him. There's a ton there. What I want to do, actually, in this newsletter, uh, all joking aside, I'm going to throw five or six passages on there. I would love it if you would just read them this week, if you would pray over them. There are passages that talk about not making other people stumble because of my freedom. And what does it look like to actually live out of this freedom, and not the bondage of the flesh, but, but life in the Spirit. And some of them will be familiar to you, and some of them you may not have actually focused on before, but would you just read them this week? And just take some time and ask God to speak to you. Would you help me live into the freedom so I don't feel as bondage to all the things of the past? And would you open up my heart to places where I've used my freedom to offend and make other people stumble? And would you remember what's about to happen with communion here where we have the broken body and shed blood as the declaration that you can actually be forgiven and free? Let that be the space you sit to go forward and bring confession and healing and feel that freedom that Christ came to purchase for you. So, so we're going to try it now with this four-lane deal. I hope it actually makes some space for you to be a little quieter and a little more contemplative. It should actually be simpler once we get the hang of it. What we're doing is not just a religious activity to come forward. We're actually remembering and saying out loud, this is how I'm set free. What Christ did for me on the cross is what sets me free. This is my only hope. You can remember places where you did make people stumble, where someone else made you stumble. You can bring all that pain to God in this moment and bring a gratitude in your heart as well that Christ really did die on the cross in a way that made everything different and made it possible for you to be forgiven and set free. That's the good news of the gospel. So you'll come forward, we'll tear a piece of the bread off and we'll dip in the cup. There's some individual cups over here uh, on the table as well and the gluten-free will be here in the middle. Uh, we'll give it a shot. And as we come, don't get distracted with the process. Let your heart go to the one who spoke these words over us. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. Jesus, we say thank you for who you are and what you've done. We ask for your help now in this moment to believe what is true about what you've done. 
Would you let my brothers and sisters who know you and trust you come into this space where they feel the freedom of Christ? And for those who are not yet to trust you, would you clarify for them where they really are? What else is the alternative? It's not, it's not freedom some other way. Um, it's actually bondage, you say. So would you meet them? Would you encounter them? Would you help them as they pray and wrestle through where they are with you? But for all those who are trusting Christ, would you bless them as they come? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, come when you're ready.